millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the World Soccer Talk podcast, the only show that talks about watching soccer on TV, online, and on apps. Uh, coming up on episode 7 of the World Soccer Talk podcast, we discuss our top 10 favorite commentators, co-commentators, and studio analysts, as well as some revealing MLS TV ratings research from Stefan Zemensky from uh, Soccernomics, the, the co-author, and also questions from you, the listeners. But before we dive in, we'd like to wish uh, all of our listeners a very Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays, wherever you are in the world. And uh, Kartik, how, how, how are things uh, with you? It's uh, an interesting time. I've been so focused on the Division Two, Division Three uh, nonsense with the U.S. Soccer Federation here in the States that I haven't uh, haven't really noticed. It's the holiday season, and and uh, now we're getting word that the U.S. Soccer Federation may punt until the New Year. So everybody's holiday season is effectively ruined because uh, uh, team staffs. Uh, uh, players, coaches, they're all in limbo as, as this drama wears on. Yeah, and like I said last week too, this is kind of, uh, in some ways I feel this is like your escape from from all of that kind of politics, which is what it is really, and yeah. it's kind of a way to talk about some some of the fun things about football, uh, as well as, I mean, to you listeners too, to hear about and, and, and find out about uh, watching football for the pure enjoyment rather than off the field antics and politics and USSF, which is, I don't know, a depressing story. So, so Kartik, let's, let's talk about in segment one, which is uh, what we've been watching. Um, I'll kick off if that's okay. And that's the, I'm not going to make this a, a Swansea City podcast, but I do want to mention that I watched, I watched the Middlesbrough against Swansea match on Saturday, last Saturday. Uh, I think it was on NBCSN. Watched it. And for the first time in my lifetime, so I've been a Swansea City supporter for goodness knows, um, like 35 years or more. For the first time in my lifetime, I actually switched off a Swansea City uh, television broadcast, a, a game. I was just so disgusted after they went down 3-0. I'm like, okay, this team has no spine. That's it. And, and I, I left and then drove off and then did some Christmas shopping, I think, and then just uh, came back later and found out that the final score was 3-0. Um, but, but really, what a depressing performance uh, for my team. And kind of really, to me, a realization that um, they're going down. They're getting relegated unless some miracle happens in the January transfer window, which, which is unlikely because it's usually a, a tough time to find uh, key players. Yeah, I'm not quite sure how they're going to stay up. They're gonna, they, need, they need about four new players. Uh, this is a uh, accumulation of several windows of bad buying by Swansea and the uh, inability to replace uh, Bonet, 
uh, the Joe Allens, uh, Sigurdsson has come back, uh, the Borini, that, that level player that, that the club has consistently lost uh, transfer window after transfer window and then not uh, not replenish the squad. Now, for a while it was working. You, know, you bring in a Michu, that works. You get a, a guy like uh, 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 Di Guzman on loan and, and you've got uh, some other fantastic players who come through, but the, the reality of... Uh, the aging uh, Leon Britton and not having a, the kind of replacement player you need, not re-signing Joe Allen this summer, which I don't understand, not re-signing Wilford Boney this summer when he was also available, not reinvesting the money you got, the exorbitant call, uh, price Manchester City paid for Boney, not reinvesting that well. And then um, I think the sale of Ashley Williams, the heart and soul yep. of the club, something that they had resisted for years and years and years uh, but, you know, good for Ashley Williams. He's finally getting a chance to play at a really big club mm-hmm. at Everton. But uh, that was the straw that broke the camel's back. I, I, without Ashley Williams, they are uh, dis- completely disorganized. And it's the same back uh, back line with the exception of Williams that they've had the last few years. The same players. Right. Yeah, that, that, that's it right there, Kartik. It, it, they've lost the spine of the team. And the spine of the team was Ashley Williams. It was Not only was he the captain, but uh, he was also the, the main centre-back. Um, and without him, you can just you can just see now in terms of uh, how much of a difference he did make. And he was definitely one of those players that won games for Swansea. And without him, we've got basically kind of mediocre defenders uh, that are pitching in, and they're not doing a uh, good enough a job. But uh, let's move on before I get <laughs> depressed. But uh, another match I watched this past weekend, which was uh, definitely entertaining, and I really enjoyed this one, was uh, Juve against Roma. Uh, it was a tight game. Uh, Juve won one zero from a sensational goal by uh, Gonzalo Higuain. Uh, just incredible, incredible goal that went in off the post. But to me, at Kartik, I really enjoyed this one because it was a tough, physical match. It was um, the referee was very lenient, so there were some tough fouls going in, and you saw that side of the game that you don't see that much anymore because you I mean most other leagues. The referees are blowing the whistle every five minutes, just any soft tackle and it's a foul or a yellow card. Did you see this match? Yeah, it was an intense match. It was a physical match. It was kind of a throwback match. And to me, I felt like um, it was an opportunity for Roma to finally break through and they didn't do it. So uh, they were uh, they, they were physical. They were intense. And I think... Uh, what you've seen under Spalletti since he went back to Roma is this more physical approach mixed with uh, a tactical a tactical sense for each matchup and each game. Now, under um, the, the previous manager, under under uh, Garcia, they had uh, um, they had set up in a way much like uh, he did when he was at Lille, right? I mean, mm-hmm. a French manager with, with a certain degree of style and and with a uh, a desire to play a certain certain type of football under Spalletti they become much more pragmatic again and and I think uh much more physical now they go into this match against Juventus really from my perspective looking for the point and uh Iguain undid that for them but it was a uh, look I mean I like this kind of football I know mm-hmm. uh a lot of people don't and maybe this is why they don't watch Serian they like the uh the intricate passing and 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 the um the type of uh, uh, quality entertainment and technical skill you get from watching games in La Liga. I get that. I totally get that. But there is something still uh, endearing to me about a good tactical battle where uh, physical attributes of of players, particularly in central midfield and in defense, are are mixed in 
to impact the result. I mean, I, I thought that this was a, it was a good game for all those who drone on about how football is supposed to be played to watch and realize that Roma and Juve are two high-level teams that can pl- that play this way uh, often. There are a lot of games like this in Italian football, and and they're just fine. I mean, th- these yeah. are teams that are that do just fine in European competition, and not always Roma, but the, uh, Juve does. And uh, I, I don't think that there's anything more moral about the way Barcelona plays than the way Juventus plays. But you, you get into that argument all the time, right? Uh, right. You get into the argument that people shouldn't be watching Serie A. It's a backward league, and they've got, um, and it's too tactical, and the beauty and, and expression of the game isn't isn't uh, demonstrated in these matches. Well, for me, this game was fine. I, I enjoyed this game. Yeah, I, I think one of the things that, uh, from a TV view, viewer's perspective, and one of the reasons why sometimes it's tough to get into Serie A is um, not so much the, the level of play or the tactics, or if it is more defensive at times, but to me it's the stadium atmosphere. And this was a good example of um, Juventus's new stu- uh, stadium in Turin. You mean a great modern stadium with the, the fans close to the pitch, um, uh, TV camera angles, even position just right. And so you were able to kind of soak in the atmosphere while watching this match and enjoying it, while a lot of the other Serie A stadiums are kind of has the, has a track around the pitch or if it's... Yeah. Even San, San, San Siro, to me, is like kind of watching kind of... You, you're so far back and it, you feel like not really connected to the game. It just It's such an open stadium. Um, that, for me, at least, was, was probably a reason that actually I, I enjoyed this match. It kind of uh, was really absorbing. Yeah, I, I think uh, West Ham is giving English fans uh, or fans of English football a taste of what Italian stadiums are like because that's the same kind of it, it, just the atmosphere. There. Or when uh, Spurs were playing at Wembley in the Champions League, yeah. same sort of thing. Uh, but, yeah, this was an absorbing match, no doubt. So, Kartik, what, what, have, what have you been watching this uh, past week? I watched the Bayern-Leipzig game, which uh, um, I thought was uh, unfortunately a letdown because Leipzig uh, had the uh, – the red card, Paulson had the red card at a pretty early stage in the game, and they came undone defensively. This was perhaps the biggest game, at least to this point, in, in, in the domestic league in Europe, with Leipzig and Bayern level on points going into the match, final match before the winter break. Um, the thing that stood out for me, two things, there were these kind of hokey Christmas outfits that uh, Eric Winalda, Jovan Karofsky, and, and Ian Joy donned with, um, with Fox, and, and the broadcast here in the States, the pregame and, and halftime and postgame, I thought that was kind of strange, uh, although the analysis and the studio show was fine otherwise. I really um, loved having Derek Ray and Owen Hargreaves, and we're going to get into this in our future topic of the week. I loved having that combination called this big game and getting that combination on American television. I think it gave um, a, a legitimacy and a credence and, and a – and a level of analysis that we don't often get for Bundesliga matches. No offense to the, to the, to the uh, guys who call games out of the Fox studio in Los Angeles. They do a credible job, and a lot of times they're dealing with uh, games that very few people are watching and very few people care about. A game like uh, a Hamburg versus uh, Mainz on a Saturday morning going up against some big Premier League game uh, on NBC. But uh, it was an important occasion, the biggest game of the Bundesliga season, and, and they did it right. Uh, of bringing in the BT team or, or using the BT feed with Derek Ray and Owen Hargreaves. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I watched this match too. I had high expectations. I mean, it was a top of the table match. I mean, both teams uh, before the kickoff, uh, same number of points and Bayern ahead on goal difference. But my expectations, and, and unfortunately, were not met. I mean, it was one of those things that um, the Bundesliga can't get any breaks. 
Because it seems that in the past couple of seasons, when there have been big matches between uh, Bayern and Dortmund, on a lot of them have been nil-nil ties and kind of really kind of dull games. And this one was basically it was over at halftime. I mean, three-zero to Bayern, Leipzig. I mean, down a man with no real chance to really come back in, in this one. So at halftime, I switched channels. I switched on. I was flipping through. I think PSG was playing, Valencia was playing, uh, Inter was playing. I mean, there's so many different options of matches you could be watching. So I wonder if, it's not just me, but I wonder, I'm sure there were a lot of other people, maybe some of you, the, the listeners too, that tuned, changed channels and watched something else or just, just dropped out and whether that'll, uh, I wonder if that'll hurt the TV ratings a little bit perhaps. But uh, it's a shame just because it was, it could have been a great match. It could have been a really kind of entertaining back and forth match between the two top teams in Germany. But this one kind of feels like a, this this is Bayern's title. Uh, I mean, it, it looks like they have kind of maybe half half a hand on this one. It's still got, still got a long way to go, but the difference between these two teams was uh, quite quite uh, quite startling. On the Bayern note, yeah, I I, I think uh, it was also interesting to see how prominent Bayern is that the story of Julian Green, U.S. international, sold to Stuttgart. Uh, and we'll move to Stuttgart in the new year, was all over the place because it happened the same day as this game in the British press, in uh, the European press, and in uh, obviously the, U- the U.S. press was going to pick up on it and, and make a big deal about it because any American moving to any club in Europe, they, they tend to overplay. But uh, th- that w- that's also kind of just reminded me of the power of Bayern. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though Julian Green has not played a first-team – well, he has played first-team match, cup matches for Bayern. Uh, even though he's a player who's been languishing in Bayern's system and ha- hasn't developed as quickly as U.S. soccer fans would hope because he's been at this this super club where he can never get a game, although, quite frankly, he's still one of the U.S.'s best players, in my opinion. He um, uh, his, his being associated with Bayern got all these headlines because he moved, and he happened to move on the day of – or the, the move was announced on the day of this game – this was disappointing. However, Bayern, you know, you still wonder. There are a lot of cracks in the team. And uh, Dortmund, who played the previous day and, and didn't get the full three points against Augsburg, again, uh, they, uh, their, their back line let them down. Uh, Ji Dong Wong came in for a goal on a counterattack when there was a bad giveaway in, uh, in midfield, and, and Ji finished it coolly. But they, you just wonder if Dortmund gets going from the midfield, attacking midfield forward, Dortmund has as strong a team as any in Europe. Uh, and I would include Barcelona and Real Madrid in that conversation. Mm-hmm. It's just the back four has been so poor this season with Hummels leaving and going to Bayern. Uh, that's the essential piece, right? Bayern uh, not only uh, improves their team, but they take a piece from Dortmund. They did it right. with Lewandowski. They did it with Mario Götze, although he's back at Dortmund now. That um, They weakened Dortmund in a critical place to where they probably win the title again. But when I watch Dortmund play, it's so frustrating because you think, uh, and obviously Christian Pulisic, the American, speaking of American internationals, he, he went the full 90 again in this game. He's getting games. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're so talented going forward that um, maybe the Bundesliga shouldn't be a one-team league th- this year. But they just Thomas Tuchel has not figured out the back four and the defensive situation, much like his compatriot. Uh, who's followed very much the same path in his career, Jurgen Klopp, uh, s- similar problems at Liverpool, although I guess Liverpool kept a clean sheet on Monday, right? So maybe right. they're beginning to solve that. Yeah, yeah, and we've seen that with uh, 
uh, Dortmund in, in the Champions League too. Just some really entertaining matches, but I mean, kind of high scoring, but also conceding a lot of, a lot of goals uh, defensively too. So, so this past weekend, the big, the big match in the Premier League was uh, Manchester City uh, against Arsenal. And this one, Kartik, was a weird one for me because I was actually at my daughter's uh, travel soccer game over on the west coast of Florida on Sunday morning in Fort Myers. And so um, the game was at the same time as the, uh, the Man City-Arsenal game. So on the drive back across Alligator Alley, which goes across, across the Everglades, which I'm sure you, you know very well, uh, I was listening to BBC Radio 606, and I had no idea what the score was. But I wanted to tune in to see what the, uh, the reaction was. And I'm listening, I'm listening, like 10 minutes go by, and they still didn't mention the scoreline. I'm like, okay, all right. They obviously kind of think that everyone knows the score, but so I'll, I'll, keep on, uh, I'll keep on watching it and uh, listening to it. And then based on the, the callers calling in as far as the Arsenal fans, uh, it sounded like it was like kind of 6-0 to, to Man City. Um, but what ended up happening was that I found out pretty soon that it was uh, 2-1 to Man City and Arsenal had the lead in the first half. And, uh, and uh, it, it was one of those strange matches where I was listening to it thinking, okay, the way that the Arsenal fans are so upset, it must have been such a, such a huge loss. But obviously, sometimes the scoreline doesn't reflect the actual performance. Yeah, I, I think uh, this game was, again, just a, uh, a, a caps- uh, encapsulated all of the frustrations of Arsenal fans with Arsene Wenger because the first half, they were well on the front foot. They were dominant. They should have had more than one goal. Manchester City uh, was uh, coming up sixes and sevens at the back. Uh, with their shape was terrible without the ball. Uh, the same things we've seen uh, for Manchester City in the losses to Leicester and Chelsea and the, the uh, very fortunate victories against Crystal Palace and Burnley where they were, they were pulled apart uh, repeatedly in those matches uh, against uh, Minnows, quite frankly, in the Premier League. And, and he had somehow escaped with three points. But for the... The Arsenal was unable to take full advantage of that in the first half. And for the first time in a long time in the second half, uh, Manchester City looked in control of a match. They were rampaging. They were looking uh, 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 very, very comfortable. Even the 2-0 against Watford midweek, Manchester City did not look comfortable in most of that match. And it, and it seemed like one of those games where Watford would get an equalizer and get out with a draw, kind of a smashing grab draw before uh, the the... the the second goal late in the second half. Uh, the second half was just classic Wenger, right? Uh, when, when when they really have an opportunity to make a statement, uh, they, uh, they're not able to close the deal. And for the second successive game, they had a 1-0 lead at halftime and blew it. Now, Wenger has made an issue out of the officials, and uh, that's... Uh, Again, I think probably both goals were on. They weren't offside, but even if even if they were, it's the mentality, it's the uh, fragility of the Arsenal squad that keeps coming back. So there's callers into 606, and um, others that are Arsenal fans are just frustrated. They're at the point where they expect to lose matches like this. They're at the point where they don't want to get too excited about the team. Now think about this. Let's put this in, in context. Arsenal started... Sunday morning a week earlier, top of the Premier League, and now we're nine points behind Chelsea. And the way Chelsea's going, they're not even going to drop nine points for the season. Mm-hmm. So Arsenal, once again, is teetering on the brink of being out of a title race when January begins, which uh, wasn't the case last season. They fell out of it 
in, in March and April last season. But in previous years, they've been out of it. Two, two seasons ago, they were out of it by this time. And, and they actually came on in January and February and made a charge towards potentially finishing second before falling away and finishing third. And then uh, 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 three seasons ago, they were uh, they were leading the Premier League for the majority of the season, if you remember. And then they finished fourth. So there's always, right. um, there's always self-doubt. There's always uh, a mentality issue with Arsenal supporters and Arsenal um, and, and the Arsenal squad. And the reason, and, and I, I think the key... We're trying to cover TV and streaming here, but I want to just make this point again because it's a common point on the, Ars uh, on the World Soccer Talk pod and Arsenal fans get angry. The reason we use history as a judge on Arsenal and we don't say, hey, well, Chelsea finished 10th last season, so they're going to fall away, or uh, Manchester United, whatever the analysis is about them or about Tottenham or whoever. Arsenal is generally the same players, it's the same manager, and it's the same mentality. And it just keeps creeping up every single season. So um, this season, I for the first time, we haven't been talking about this stuff uh, on, on the podcast. I was beginning to think maybe my analysis of Wenger and Arsenal was wrong a few weeks ago. Right. They looked very good. They were getting results. But then they had this disastrous week, and it's just a reminder of what they are. So I think 606 reflects that. I think the analysis on, uh, on Robbie Musto on NBC uh, uh, reflects that. And I think the same thing with the analysis on ESPN FC. And uh, the reason why Craig Burley isn't as hard on Arsenal as the other ESPN FC commentators is because Burley, quite frankly, says, I never expect Arsenal to win anything uh, under Wenger. They'll go on a nice FA Cup run. They do that all the time. But yeah. uh, I don't expect them to win uh, in Europe or uh, in the league. So uh, you know, they drew Bayern, so they have an excuse that they're going to go out again because they drew Bayern. And uh, this is typical in the league. So why is everyone freaking out? It's, it's basically his, his thought process. Yeah, when, when I got back uh, from that trip to the west coast of Florida, I sat down and watched the highlights. So I, I didn't watch the whole match, um, but I watched the highlights on, uh, I think, on the Roku, on the NBC Sports app. And, uh, I mean, some great goals by Man City. I mean, just kind of, uh, I didn't see a lot there in the highlights to kind of uh, criticize Arsenal about, but maybe perhaps it was just a frustrating week. And kind of, again, kind of a reality of where they are right now in terms of still a long ways off uh, from the title. Uh, but sometimes highlights are, are misleading. Sometimes you watch highlights and you think, okay, well, that, that wasn't that was a pretty close match. But maybe in the second half, maybe it was just Man City. Well, once Man City got the goal, there was never a thought process, a thought that Arsenal were going to win the game. And that's very different than everything we've seen with Man City over the course of the last two months where they teeter on the brink even against the likes of Burnley and Crystal Palace. Right. And uh, Middlesbrough got a late goal to equalize and, and, and take a point at the uh, Etihad. Southampton got a goal uh, to take a point at the Etihad. There was, um, the, it, it was stunning. I mean, perhaps it was Manchester City raising their game for the first time since the middle of September. Or more likely it was Arsenal once again being Arsenal. Yeah, well, one thing I did enjoy um, in that kind of going through the NBC Sports app and kind of catching up on some of the coverage I'd missed on that Sunday morning was they had the, the post-match interview with Yaya Toure. Uh, I mean, they had the pitch-side studio, and there he was kind of talking about uh, what's going on in the match itself. Uh, it was pretty revealing. I thought one of the questions that Arlo asked about kind of uh, Yaya and how he's uh, enjoying playing football and uh, Guardiola and... Uh, Yaya was kind of saying that basically he's, uh, he's really kind of regained his, his love and is really enjoying it a lot more now than in the past 
which was uh, pretty revealing in its, in its own self in terms of um, perhaps some of its relationships with other managers, but also kind of a rocky start with uh, Guardiola. But uh, I think hats off there to uh, NBC Sports be, for being able to do that kind of pitch side and having, yeah, having people the, 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 there. No, no, I was going to say, I, th- I thought the thing about his weight was interesting because he, he made the, the reference that he feels like he's 20 again, he's had to lose all this weight. For years, a lot of us thought part of the reason Tory was such a, a versatile player and such an effective player and, and unplayable at times in central midfield, if you're a defender, was because he was so big. And there was a fear factor when he ran at you with the ball or ran at you on a counter-attacking run where then he's getting the ball back from Jekyll or whoever. Um, I, I guess... He's even more ferocious. I mean, maybe it's age. He's about to turn 34 in a few months. Uh, that uh, he's even more ferocious a player with his weight down because he he was very commanding and very good in this game, and he's been very good since he he got back into the team. Um, and and I think uh, it is probably the thing that has saved Manchester City's season because I don't I don't think Manchester City finishes in the top four with Gundogan injured and no Yaya Torre. I, I think it's it's done. They're they're finished sixth. They finished. Both. Behind Spurs, they finished behind United and behind the, the, the other three teams now that are now in the top four. With Torrey and the team, they have a chance to finish in the top four. So I think uh, Guardiola and uh, and Torrey making up uh, might have saved Manchester City's season. Yeah, 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 definitely looked a different person. He looked he looked so much younger, just uh, so much thinner. A- any other interviews that, uh, did NBC do, uh, Kartik, that I may have missed? Like post-match? Yeah, I mean, Theo, Theo Walcott's interview with... Uh, with the with Arlo and and and, and Graham and and, and uh, Lee Dixon was interesting because he gave a ah, there were a couple of things he said there was one thing he said about how uh, there are guys who don't do their job something like that I'm paraphrasing that it seemed to be a clear shot at his teammates and then um, that was something I had observed during the interview and then Robbie Musto when they go back to the match of the day studios match of the day two studios basically says something along the lines of. I, uh, I, I think he, I, I, I would be, you know, it's great that he came and did the interview with us, with our guys, but uh, he, he didn't seem to be at all angry or disappointed uh, because, yeah, yeah. of course, Walcott is, uh, you, you know, you, you, you can look at the uh, Arsene Wenger era two ways. You could look at guys like Dennis Bergkamp and Patrick Vieira as the symbols of the Wenger era, or you could look at Theo Walcott, who I think is, is now the longest tenure player to have played for Wenger period in his Arsenal uh, as, as Arsenal manager as the as the embodiment of the uh, of the Wenger era and uh, that says it all I mean mm-hmm. Walcott is just probably so accustomed to these sorts of results and these sorts of games eh, it doesn't really affect him very much and and he he's the guy who scored the goal right he had a pretty decent game but it's um it was an interesting observation from Musto because I, I didn't pick up on that during the interview but then I went and rewound it and watched it again and I said yeah you know for Guy that's lo- just lost the game like this, he, he doesn't seem angry, and, he, and he's clearly kind of throwing other other players on the bus, saying, "Well, they didn't they didn't reach a certain level." Now, uh, when you go to ESPN FC and you listen to Craig Burley and to Moreno, Alejandro Moreno, and Steve Nichol, there was a and Dan Thomas. There's about a ten minute discussion about who that player was that he was referring to, and it was Metzozil. Well, and and Mets, they, they didn't reference the Walcott interview with NBC, but they referenced a, a player that was um, just not playing. And mm-hmm. the the conclusion of the uh, conversation was Stevie Nichols said, "I believe that that uh, 
uh, Arsenal should just let Mesut Ozil go and then use that savings to make sure they keep Sanchez. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. But, but, that's an interesting idea, yeah, actually. Yeah, based on that. Because point. they might lose both. They right. might lose both. So maybe you, 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 you cut your losses here and you say, well, Alexis Sanchez is maybe the, 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 the one truly world-class player in the Premier League. I, maybe uh, Zlatan is in that conversation still also. Mm -hmm. Two world-class players in the Premier League. Uh, you keep them. You do something to keep them. And that, that might mean jettisoning Metsudosu. Who knows? Yeah. Maybe. But, but, but speaking of NBC, I mean, kind of that pitch side studio that they had uh, post-match there at um, uh, the city of Manchester Stadium. Also on Monday, they carried through to, to the uh, Ola White and Lee Dixon uh, commentating live from Goodison Park for the, the Merseyside derby. And it, this was really one car ticket I thought that um, was a great example of just how much more meaningful it, ha it means to have your talent at the stadium. I mean, you had Ola White and Lee Dixon, and Lee Dixon himself saying, hey, this, this I mean, I, I've, I've been to derbies before, but this match, just the noise, the sheer noise, even with headphones on, is, is incredible. And I think that makes such a, such a difference when um, the viewers are watching this match. It wasn't the greatest of matches. It was, it, was a, it was a great ending, especially for Liverpool fans, but it means so much more to have your talent at the stadiums. Yeah, it does. And I thought the, the presentation of this game was impeccable. The, the complaint I have about NBC right now is that it's very random when they do this, right? Mm -hmm. uh, Merseyside Derby is an occasion. It makes sense. But there are other big games this season and last season where they haven't had the on-site studio. They haven't had Steve Bauer in the gantry. They haven't had uh, uh, this sort of presentation. And um, you just never know when you're going to get it, right? And um, that's, that's the... Uh, that's the complaint I have. I mean, you have some perfectly big games. Well, I, I don't know what they have planned for Liverpool Man City on December 31st. Maybe it's something similar, and that would be good. And obviously, Arsenal Man City was very, very good how they presented that. But there have been some games this season which haven't had that kind of uh, circle surround uh, presentation mm -hmm. uh, this season. Uh, maybe it's easier when it's an isolated Monday night game. They did it for Liverpool and Man United earlier in the season. But uh, and, and I think, I, if I remember correctly, did they do it for Liverpool-Chelsea? That was a Friday game, remember, early in the season at Stamford yeah, Bridge. I think so. I think so. And just for the record, they didn't have a pitch night studio at Goodison. It was just they were in the gantry, but they had right. one on, on Sunday. But it is one of those right. things. Part of it might be access. I mean, kind of as far as the home club in terms of how much they're willing access to give. Uh, the other part might be just, um, I'm not sure. I mean, for me, it's, it's kind of a bluebird. It's like a pleasant surprise when I do see it. I'm like, wow, this is incredible. This makes such much of a difference. And I wasn't expecting that for the Man City Arsenal game. I did, didn't hear anything, any kind of scuttlebutt or any news ahead of time that uh, they were going to have a pitch side studio. But um, maybe it's one of those things they, they kind of pull off at the last minute and they try to make it work. And if it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. But uh, it, it makes for great entertainment, and I think is, I mean, like to me, it's like when when was the last time you had Fox Sports have live talent or well, talent live at a, a game in Europe? And it's been it's been a few years. Probably the last time was Gus Johnson, so which seems like years ago. Which probably only about like maybe like two years ago, but it does make make a difference. And, well, it was uh, 2013 when they had Gus Johnson doing that, so it's been four oh. years now. Uh, right, and and, and that's. Uh, uh, yeah, Fox hasn't, uh, they haven't, I, I thought they would for the Bundesliga, maybe have one or two games, big games, like this would have been the game, right, right? Leipzig-Bayern, yeah. although again, I'm glad that they, they didn't because we got Hargreaves and Ray, but it's, uh, 
it, I, I don't know. I mean, their commitment level, uh, other than when they uh, when they have Champions League finals, right? That's the only time they send um, even studio teams over. Is uh, their commitment level is low? Yet they're they're all in on FIFA. I mean, they sent uh, they sent folks for the Confederations Cup draw, which I thought was kind of bizarre. Right. Which and, which, uh, which I think nobody hardly no, nobody watched. Nobody really cared about. I mean, right. Yeah, I, I, I mean, actually, and they put and they put a lot of effort, and I give them props for this. Mm-hmm. Uh, they put a lot of effort into covering the FIFA election, which was, uh, and they were right. on yep. basically Live. at three o'clock in the morning uh, Pacific time, where their studio is, and they had people coming in and out all day and interviews, and basically were on the air for about eight or nine hours straight. I mean, they, it seems like they've taken their FIFA contract very seriously, mm-hmm. but they're not taking the other soccer properties they have quite as. Seriously, right, and and a good example of this to me is uh, Keith Costigan. So Keith does a great job at Fox, one of kind of the unsung heroes. And for the past probably three years, maybe, maybe even four years, he goes out to the UK during December to do a whole bunch of one on one featured interviews. So like on Instagram yesterday, I think he posted a picture of him uh, interviewing uh, Eden Hazard at Chelsea. So he does, and he's been doing this for years now. So he often does a whole bunch of one on one interviews. And then for FA Cup, so he basically kind of records the information and then has them ready to to appear on the FA Cup uh, kind of pregame show or halftime show, uh, which happens well, the first week in January usually. But the the shame of it is is that it's kind of kind of a misuse of talent, I think, because basically what we see is usually maybe about a minute or two minutes of an interview that probably was a a ten to fifteen minute interview, maybe twenty minutes. And I'd love to see the whole thing. And this has happened year after year. He gets big interviews with, you I mean, Klopp and Mourinho and others, but we only see bits and pieces of it. And NBC with the Premier League download, and they kind of have a this weekend. I think they have a one-on-one interview with uh, Bob Bradley. Um, and I think over the holiday period, they ha- have a one-on-one with Pep Guardiola. And they're, they're turning those into Premier League downloads, where you can watch on NBC Sports app or you can watch on television and kind of really get in and get to know that person a lot better. And Keith's doing the hard work, but for whatever reason within Fox, they're only picking bits and pieces of it. And usually Keith will stick around and, and sometimes he'll report live from, I think last year it was from Tranmere, I think Prenton Park on a, on a Friday night. I think they were having an FA Cup game. And he kind of does like a live remote kind of pitch side, like a sideline reporter. But to me, Fox is really kind of, uh, could be, Using him a lot better and using the the, the great interviews that he does uh, a whole lot better to actually be able to kind of basically broadcast those. I mean, if it's great stuff, let's get it out there rather than just taking small little pieces. So, Kartik, uh anything else you watched this weekend? Anything else of uh, of note? Yeah, I watched the the Premier League show on uh, BBC, which I often watch. It's a BBC Two show in the, U- in the UK. They show it on BBC World in the US. Gary Lineker came to New York, and I was all excited about this show. But it ended up focusing a lot on New York City FC, on Patrick Vieira and Frank Lampard, and then on Premier League fandom in New York. And, of course, uh, NYCFC and the connection to Manchester City, right, uh, as, as a outgrowth of the Premier League and the Premier League sticking its imprint on MLS. Uh, it wasn't quite as uh, as good in, in discussing Premier League fandom in the United States as I thought it might be, uh, but it was still nice to see some recognition of of, of, of U.S. fandom and and, uh, and the growth of the Premier League in the United States, uh, and that's uh, that was a good aspect of it. But again, I think there was an overemphasis on New York and then on a 
club that, that is owned by a Premier League club rather than exploring the country as a whole and the soccer scene as a whole. Yeah, and that show, sometimes they uh, NBC picks those up and actually uh, shows them too. And uh, I can't remember which one it was, but it was one from a couple of months ago that they went ahead and took, um, I think it was an interview with somebody, and then went ahead and, and used that in some of their shows. Uh, quite, quite, I can't remember which one it was, but if you do get a chance to watch it, 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 is, it is pretty good work. But, uh, but it's, yeah, it's a shame with this one that they didn't really focus uh, outside of New York City, because to me... I don't know, NYCFC is not really an interesting story. Uh, even playing at a baseball stadium, I don't know. To me, I, I just don't get the whole appeal of that. Yes, it's great to have a team in the city, but um, on a national level, there's very little interest, uh, for me at least. Um, and then Kartik, last but, least, uh, last but not least, uh, Behind the Badge, they had the episode four, which I believe is the final one in the series um, on NBC Sports about Watford. And I think over the holiday period, they're going to have a marathon and, and show all four of those. Um, so if you did miss any of them, you can watch them on television as well as, uh, of course, anytime on the NBC Sports app. And uh, this one, again, it was, it was pretty good. It was, it was interesting. I, I hope that NBC Sports continues to do these. Uh, what it did show that was of interest to me, at least, was that uh, Watford at, at Vicarage Road, the stadium, they have a sensory room, which, are for ch- which is for children with autism, so um, what they have is kind of a room set aside so to, for those children that have kind of sensory overloads sometimes and they can't really kind of go into a stadium and all the noises and all the kind of the random things that happens. Here's kind of a room that they can go to that's, uh, that's it's quieter, it's, it's got kind of pillows and it's actually it's kind of a safe room for them to kind of still watch the match and enjoy it but in, in their own way. And this is only the second of these types of rooms um, throughout England in Premier League stadiums. That I thought was interesting. That was something I didn't know. Uh, you had Better Army. You had uh, kind of footage of him throwing up, actually physically throwing up. You could see the you could see the whole thing happening. Uh, that was something I could have done without, um, but still kind of interesting to watch. And um, but basically, the parting message of this documentary is that um, is that Watford embraces the Watford way. And it's really a, a family club that's organized uh, on and off the pitch very well. Uh, and it was a good primer for soccer fans in the United States about Watford f- Football Club. And I think in some ways, too, that um, for those fans who are looking for a team, I think here's a team that's uh, kind of got a good foundation and uh, could possibly be a team that uh, could win over some fans. So, But uh, I thought it was well done. I enjoyed it. Uh, wasn't as good as Crystal Palace, but... Uh, uh, still a thumbs up for me. Got it. Did you get a chance to uh, to watch that final episode? I have not watched the entire final episode yet, so I need to. I still have that on my DVR. Yep, yep. No worries. That's a great thing too. But uh, time shifting, we can uh, watch that whenever we want to. It, it's. Uh, but yeah, I would definitely recommend it. So on to segment number two, which is uh, talking about TV streaming news. So not as much news as last week. Last week we had a ton of stuff from. Uh, DirecTV now and, and Fubo TV and you, you name it, a whole bunch of other companies too. Um, the first thing I want to talk about, Kartik, is that um, this is coming out in 2017. Uh, it hasn't been officially announced, but uh, it's probably going to be revealed at the uh, CES show, uh, which is usually kind of the first quarter of 2017. So it may not be out until the end of 2017, but it's something from Sling TV. Um, some research was found online to kind of reveal that there's going to be something called an Air TV player, uh, which, which is basically um, a Sling TV box 
that someone can buy, and it comes with Sling TV, but also comes with your local over-the-air channels too. So wherever you live in the United States, uh, if you have Sling TV, you could be watching it and being able to actually also access your Fox and NBC um, and ABC, kind of the um, over-the-air channels. And uh, it also comes with Netflix if you want it too. So it's, it's really kind of an all-in-one uh, sling box with a remote control, which I think is voice controlled. So for, for most people, this would be everything you would possibly want and uh, without having to buy different packages or different things, it's kind of all-in-one. So that's, a, uh, that's, that's some coming out in 2017. Any, any other news happening in the TV streaming space? Yeah, so this week, uh, it, 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 Fubo introduced some interface changes uh, to the way you, you consume Fubo TV. And uh, let me read the, the note from them. Uh, this Thursday, December 22nd, which happens to be the day we're recording, uh, Fubo TV is unveiling a new user interface to the website. This new interface is being implemented to not only make Fubo TV easier to navigate, but also in preparation for new programming launching in the couple in the in the coming weeks, which we've already discussed on this show. Um, the better changes to the website, the changes to the website will include better overall desktop and mobile web navigation, which is exciting. New channel guide to and to improve content discovery and separation of sports and entertainment categories. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's uh, I think that's interesting, and it shows that they're pushing the, with with the added content that they're going to offer, which we've reported previously on this show they are going to change the interface as of now as of today when you're listening to this podcast you can pull up your fubo app or pull up fubo on your desktop and it's going to look completely different yeah yeah definitely looking forward to that and, and that's in preparation as you said for uh, kind of the launch um or the relaunch of well, actually launch of new uh, new uh, packages which are coming out uh I believe in early January, which is going to have um, NBC Sports uh, Network, uh, FS1, FS2, and a whole ton of other channels. So that should be uh, exciting to check out and see how the new, new, the new design looks. Um, and then, Kartik, let's move on to the segment three of the show, which is talking about TV ratings. And uh, first of all, uh, BN Sports, I've got some news from them. And that's basically that um, looking at November 2016, um, their ratings was up. So it was up 27% across the English language being sports and then 14% across the uh, Spanish language uh, being sports and Espanol. And um, the El Clasico happened in December, so this doesn't include that, but those numbers are up. Uh, they're the best month since April. Most of that was based on uh, World Cup qualifiers, and there were some big ones too. I think uh, Brazil played Argentina, um, and there was I mean, Colombia. I mean, all the teams, the major teams in South America were involved, as well as the, I think it was the USA-Costa Rica game was on um, on there too. So some big numbers from BN Sports and uh, definitely uh, a good end of the year for, for that uh, uh, cable TV network. And in Kartik, um, also Stefan Szymanski, we, we mentioned this before too. So Stefan, who is the co-author of Soconomics, uh, he's given us. Uh, he's actually been working a lot with that, the, the the research and stats that we have. So on WolfSoccerTalk.com, we have the weekly TV ratings, which looks at the most watched games uh, across the United States on on television. And uh, he's been able to take those uh, the research that's been done by one of our writers, uh, Colin Werner, and uh, he's gone ahead and kind of uh, written an article based on that, uh, based on some of the findings he's found in there. 
And we'll be publishing those soon. Um, probably by the time you listen to this podcast, they'll be live on wallsoccertalk.com. But in Stefan's article, it's interesting because he's revealed that uh, during the period of August to December of 2016, MLS accounted for only 7% of total viewing of soccer in the United States, while uh, Liga MX uh, accounted for one-third. And it's revealing, uh, really, because, I mean, that, that's, that should be the high point of the MLS season. You're going into, you mean, the, end, the, play, the playoff race, try to, try to make it into the playoffs, and then you've got the, uh, the playoffs and, and then the conference finals all the way up into the final itself. So that includes the final numbers. But 7% of the people watching soccer uh, on television in the United States were watching MLS. Which, What do you think about that, Kartik? Uh, I think that it's, again, pretty striking that uh, how badly MLS is stri- failing on television in spite of the just the legions of hatred we get from MLS fans and and uh, and, and and just the, the reactive nature. Anytime you point this out, MLS has not improved its television profile in 15 years. That's the reality. I mean, I, it, 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 the growth of MLS on television is not in any way incremental with the growth of this sport on television in the country in general. So, um, you know, guys, keep 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 drinking the Kool Aid. Keep believing what you want to believe. Um, because you guys are much bigger league fans than you are club fans or football fans, the ones who defend MLS on these issues. Yeah, and the other interesting thing from uh, Stefan Zemanski, too, is that uh, looking at the research, he said that while audiences rise for Liga MX and international games played during primetime East Coast, they actually fall for MLS. And uh, that data includes the MLS Cup Final, which attracted uh, 2 million viewers across uh, English language and Spanish language in the United States. So that's interesting, too, because I think MLS, I mean, definitely with the new uh, basically fixed time windows where you have, you mean, you have primetime Friday night games, you have primetime Sunday night games, and then you have the Sunday afternoon games, too, usually on ESPN. So they've picked picked, uh, times that uh, are probably going to be the best for TV ratings or what they believe is going to be the best for TV ratings. But actually, the primetime numbers are lower. Uh, they actually fall for MLS. Yeah, MLS actually does better uh, during kind of uh, off hours. So whether it's which is why you notice NB, uh, ESPN this year began to creep up the games to uh, three thirty, three o'clock on on Sundays. Sundays yeah, move, yeah, move, uh, made sure they were on ESPN rather than ESPN two, and all those things gave a slight bump. Now again, those are slight bumps, and that accounts for the difference in television numbers from this year to last year. Again, there is no. Um, mass movement of people toward MLS. The growth of TV, uh, MLS as a TV property does not match the growth of soccer as a TV sport in this country. It's not even close. So that's something that... Um, and you know what? Uh, the people who, who push back against what, what the analysis we give, Chris, they're not... They're being maybe pushed by people connected with MLS to do so. But those are not the conversations you're having in MLS HQ. In MLS HQ, they want to figure out a way to solve this. I've argued they can't solve it without having promotion and relegation and an open system or uh, something that makes the, the games more meaningful. Uh, you've given a counterargument, which, which I respect. The, but the point is they're failing. Regardless of who's, whether they can improve or can't improve, they're right now failing pretty miserably. And I look forward to reading Stefan Szymanski's article. Uh, but, of course— he will be qualified as an MLS hater mm-hmm. the second the article 
spectacle goes up. So that's the only problem. I mean, it's, it's almost like uh, MLS, uh, MLS fans, uh, MLS apologists have their set of writers and uh, journalists that they listen to, and they're not concerned. If anybody else says something, uh, then it's just, well, these people hate MLS. Uh, maybe they're jealous of our success, that sort of thing. That's a narrative. Yeah, and that's the thing, though, too. Is I mean, these numbers speak for themselves, and, and these are numbers that are statistically relevant. I mean, they're not pulled or ma- made up. It's it's the numbers are the numbers, and um, I, that that's a worrying thing, I think, for Major League Soccer too. Is that prime time the numbers are falling? Uh, obviously, in, in the morning times, they've got s- stiff competition from um, from Premier League, especially as well as other leagues around Europe. So it's trying to find that sweet spot of actually when to show games where you're, you're going to have more of a, a TV viewing audience that would be uh, more acceptable, which would be probably early to mid-afternoon. But oftentimes you're competing against uh, Barcelona and Real Madrid at that time. Um, and then, of, co- of course, you've got the, uh, the people going to the matches, the people that are paying for the tickets to go. I mean, they, they don't want to have all early games. So, and, and if you have it at nighttime, not only are the numbers lower TV-wise, but then also you're competing against, you mean college football or American football, uh, etc. So it, they're in a tough spot, and um, yeah, I think off the records they would admit Kartik with you and, and agree and say that yeah, we've got some issues and we've got some problems. Uh, on the records, they're going to be talking about, you mean best ratings ever for an MLS Cup final. Uh, everything is great. Everything is 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 on on the increase, on the rise, and. Uh, look how great we are type of thing. But um, for those who look closely, uh, ourselves included, there's some worrying signs there. We'd, I, I would like it to improve and, and, and uh, increase. Um, but again, I think MLS seems very stubborn and very kind of um, slow moving in that regard. And um, yeah, you, you mentioned any, any criticism and, and you get uh, lambasted by, by a lot of uh, people just calling you I mean, all sorts of names. Ah, Kartik. All right, let's move on to the next segment, which is listener mailbag. Um, and with the first question we have is from a listener by the name of uh, Sheldrick Walls, and he posted this onto Facebook, uh, on our Facebook page. And he says, with ESPN losing the rights to the next two World Cups, do you see them acquiring the rights to any other continental championships? He says that, uh, I don't have been sports, but I would love to be able to watch the African Cup of Nations there's a large Saharan and sub-Saharan African population here in the States. Why isn't African football more accessible here in the States? Kartik, what do you think? Yeah, I think that uh, for the most part, ethnic groups that come from uh, countries outside Latin America uh, are, are not that uh, interested in, in, in the football uh, that, that's played. Now, I, they, they might be every four years when the World Cup rolls around. Maybe the Cup of African Nations could work uh, on, on a channel beyond BN, but I don't think it would. I, I think uh, you're looking at a situation where uh, most immigrant communities detach themselves from, uh, from the national football teams, with the exception of, of uh, immigrants from Latin America and, and immigrants. Uh, and perhaps, again, the volume of the immigration from Latin America is just so large that that's why they're, uh, they're into it. And, and I think more recent uh, Eastern European immigrants to the United States or the other community that's very kind of glued in with their, uh, with their national teams and what their national teams are doing. So uh, that, that's obviously covered by Fox and ESPN. Uh, I, do want, I do want to remind uh, um, Shedrick Wall, uh, Sheldrick that ESPN does have the Euros again in 2020 and that they have also 
uh, acquire the rights to the uh, European Nations Cup, right? Is that what it's called? Nations the League. Tournament that begins? Nations yeah. League, correct. Yeah. Um, but, but, he's, uh, uh, but he makes a very good point about ESPN maybe should look at uh, rights to, uh, to something beyond uh, beyond just what they've got now mm-hmm. uh, internationally. I mean, I've always been surprised that they haven't made a run at Copa Americas or the Gold Cup. Yeah. That, to me, is kind of surprising. Yeah, that, that, that's what I, I was actually thinking, too, is that uh, maybe another Copa America centenario, if Conmebol and CONCACAF can come together with some type of decision to do this again. Because it, it, from a TV perspective and from a ticket perspective, even though the tickets were uh, really high-priced, uh, it was a success overall, so that's something that possibly could be done in the future, um, and that's something that perhaps ESPN can try to bid on and try to get that um, instead of Fox. But um, yeah, BN Sports, I mean, does have the rights to the African Cup of Nations. Um, it's uh, most of those games are on BN Sports, usually on Saturday mornings, kind of early on, on during when, when the tournament is played uh, or the qualifiers are played. But but really, it's the, the viewer numbers for those games are pretty small. Um, and I think maybe people, maybe if they live in New York City, they live in a bubble in, in many times. I mean, every time I go to New York City and take a cab, usually the, the cab drivers from, you mean, from all, all the way around the world, but oftentimes from Africa, different parts of Africa, and they're always surprised about how much I know about their countries just because from a soccer perspective, I know a lot about different players and different cities just from, from that. Um, but I think that's a bubble. That doesn't, that doesn't represent the whole of the United States. Yes, we'd love to see... Um, more African uh, uh, national teams play uh, during the World Cup. It's always entertaining, but um, at least for now, I think being sports and where the Africa Cup of Nations is is probably a good spot. If ESPN did get it, they probably would put it on, on ESPN3, uh, and that would help as far as maybe more accessibility for people to get it, more access to get it. But then at the end of the day, too, those numbers still aren't going to be that great. So I think it's at the end of the day, if there's enough people to, that want it, that will watch it, um, these companies will get it, but we're not quite there yet. And then can I take another question from uh, one of our uh, listeners? Uh, this is uh, Scott from McKellen, Texas, who's uh, written in to us again. And he says, regarding last week's pod, he says, very good pod with a lot of content. I like the idea of the MLS matching the seasons with the other leagues in the region. Uh, and I think he mentions uh, League MX. And I, for one, support the split-season idea. I think it's a good idea, especially when someone can pull off uh, the coveted back-to-back champion- championship. Uh, he says, uh, I wanted to touch on conference format of, of Major League Soccer 2. I've never been a fan of the East-West conference format. He says that uh, soccer has always been my first love. But as an American, I also watch the NFL and Major League Baseball. What if, especially when the Major League Soccer finishes its expansion to 28 teams, uh, they make two separate national conferences, uh, for the example, AL, American League, or National League in baseball, and then broke down the conferences into regional divisions. And then for the playoffs, you take the division winner plus uh, X number of wild cards. And it would put more of a focus on regional uh, rivalries. And he says, I think, more emphasis, and, and that would put more and more emphasis on the regular season. Uh, what are your thoughts about that one, Kartik? I agree on the emphasis on the regular season. The reason I like East and West and would urge MLS eventually just to split the leagues uh, into two is since they continue to expand is that I, I think soccer is very different than American 
professional franchise-based sports. It is a sport where fans, and especially since fans watch a lot of English and German football. I mean, fa uh, uh, away fans don't travel as much in Spain. They don't travel as much in some other places. In Italy, they tend to in, in their regions, um, although it's become in Italy, there's less traveling fans now because it's become unsafe some of the stadiums for traveling fans, but that's a whole nother issue. But the general preferences in Italy, you would travel also. But the point is traveling fans is the essence of the club game. And that we see replicated only in one sport in this country. And that's college football. Mm -hmm. And college football is organized on a regional basis, even though it's become a little less regional with conferences expanding. But historically you've played in a league in your region and then you've, now we have a college football playoff, but then you play the bowl game or whatever uh, to, to determine champions. And there are rivalries that develop because of conf uh, between conferences because of it, uh, which is another kind of weird American phenomenon where people are adhere to fans of leagues more than they are teams. But that's, uh, I, I think the regionalization West East is, is important in MLS. I, I don't favor really an ALNL thing because I think that that might break up the regional rivalries. I like the fact that. Portland and Seattle play now more in MLS than uh, Seattle plays in Orlando. That makes sense. And I, and I like the fact that Orlando and Atlanta are going to play more now that Atlanta's coming to the league than, uh, than uh, L.A. plays New England. I mean, it, it, to me, it's just very logical. And, and traveling fans is the essence of the game. And this is something I've told the NASL time and again, that uh, there is no reason for Fort Lauderdale to be traveling to Edmonton more than they're traveling to Tampa Bay or Jacksonville. But mm -hmm. they haven't quite gotten their head around that. And, and they've kind of disenfranchised supporters in the process. So I, li I like Scott's um, thinking as far as making the regular season more meaningful and competitive. I, I, I subscribe to that. I would keep them in East and West, though. And, and just to follow up to, uh, to a question that we had last week, Kartik, from uh, I think it was from uh, Roberto Rojas, uh, Sunny SoCal. And he posted a question about uh, on Twitter about uh, to us about Liga MX and kind of uh, whether we thought the English uh, SAP would increase uh, uh, TV viewership. And so I went last Friday to Univision to meet with them. I got a tour of the studio, um, and at some point I'll plan on putting that together and producing that as kind of a video to kind of show the listeners what the Univision studios look like, and as well as talking to Univision about uh, some of the plans for 2017 and some of their perspectives on the TV ratings business. It was an interesting meeting and definitely um, we'll be writing some articles about that, about some of the information I got. But I did ask about Robert's question about uh, English language rights. And it's interesting because in Mexico, in Liga MX, uh, the rights are owned by the teams. So uh, when Univision acquires rights, so it's, it's on a team-specific basis. So they'll, they'll go to Club America, they'll go to Club Lyon, they'll go through all the league and try to acquire as many as they can. And I think they have about 13 of the 18, if I believe uh, is correct. Um, as far as English rights, they're picking up the English rights uh, at each and every of those clubs that they can at most of them. And at some point in the future, they've been talking about perhaps maybe making an, an English SAP um, feed available. And they did say they did try it, I think, a couple of years ago at Lyon. Um, or was it Pumas? But it was one of the clubs. They've tried it before, and it did okay. But um, that, that's something that could, could happen in the future. We could actually see English language SAP feeds available for if you want to watch Liga Max and get an English commentator's uh, announced in that match. Uh, that could be something uh, to, to look forward to. We'll have to wait and see. 
And then, Kartik, uh, last question we have, too. This one's a little bit of a long one, so I'll go through this one. This is from uh, Graham Cumberbatch, uh, great name. And uh, he posted this one uh, through email. He says, hi, Chris Kartik. Uh, enjoying the show, new format, format and all. I wanted to pose a few questions about La Liga and its potential for further popularity in the United States. I think it is important because a lot of what uh, helps develop a country's football culture is the ability to recognize and evaluate quality of play in a global context. I think any change in a nation's soccer identity typically starts with a broadening of its collective soccer IQ. In that sense, one could po uh, posit an interesting link between the evolution of the English game, particularly in the Premier League, and Britain's increased TV exposure to Serie A in the 1970s and 1980s. A few episodes ago, you mentioned a dichotomy that, that's growing in popularity. That is, La Liga is the world's best league, and the Premier League is the world's most entertaining league. I definitely agree with this in terms of La Liga's superior football product, but in the interest of expanding American soccer uh, palettes, do you think it's time we start questioning exactly why we take for granted the Premier League's status as most entertaining? And I'll continue in a second, Kartik, but I'm probably going to break this up into a little bit because there's actually has some good questions and good thoughts in here. So he says... Um, is what constitutes superior entertainment, i.e. speed, drama, blockbuster personalities, end-to-end -end action, universal? And how much does ceding that title to the Premier League restrict the diversity of ways in which we draw new fans to the sport? In the case of La Liga, is the difference between niche and exciting just a matter of marketing? Could La Liga's elite individual talent, technical emphasis, and tactical variety connect with an audience bred on the technical and tactical genius of a Steph Curry or a Bill Belichick, respectively. And I'll pause there, Kartik. Any, any thoughts thus far in terms of uh, what he said and, and, and some of the questions he's asking? Yeah, I, I, think, um, I, I think there's just a, a connection to, to British culture and Anglicized culture in this country, uh, particularly among a lot of millennials that's tough to overcome. I mean, I, I'm going to be just, I'm going to be honest about that. And that's, that's kind of your gateway. And then the accessibility of NBC and the way things are presented. And, and that's um, in the common language. I mean, all of those things I think tend to do it because there are backstories and um, cultures about supporting clubs outside the top four or top six that are very compelling in England. Now there are in Spain too. There are a lot of incredible stories. Just just uh, go to Copa 90 and watch some of the, 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 the club documentaries about clubs in Spain. But that just hasn't connected with an American audience. Um, now, as far as, like, the technical and tactical genius, yeah, there's no question. I mean, I think, honestly, I've said this over and over again this season and gotten a lot of criticism from Anglophiles. But the Premier League – and then Craig Burley, of course uh, – uh, said the same thing on ESPN FC and got all kinds of abuse that the, the level of defending in the Premier League is horrible. And that's why Premier League teams don't do well in Europe anymore. Mm -hmm. That's why you have these three, three and four, four games. It's not necessarily because of the individual brilliance and technical skill of the attacking players. It's because the, the level of defending and the, um, the technique used by defenders in the Premier League is just, it's just, it's just bad. It's bad by Western European standards. It's worse than, than Spain. It's worse than Germany. I think everyone will acknowledge that, but it's also worse than France and Italy. Okay. Mm -hmm. And could be worse than, than the Dutch league in terms of just the, the overall kind of merits of defenders. 
But I, I don't know that Americans are sophisticated enough yet in how they consume football from a strategic and tactical point of view, which is why um, you have all these defenders of MLS. You have people who, who obsess on the wrong things about the U.S. men's national team. Uh, and, and Jurgen Klinsmann's been fired now, but he lasted five and a half years in a job where if he were managing a European national team, he would have been gone after six months, the way he managed that team um, tactically. That... I just don't think Americans are sophisticated enough to understand that. That sounds very, uh, as a whole, obviously there were lots of exceptions, and those exceptions are already watching La Liga, they're already watching the Premier League, they're already watching Serie A or Liga MX. But I don't think, as a whole, Americans quite understand what they're watching yet. They're entertained by it, they are interested in it, they'll get there eventually, mm-hmm. and when they get there, uh, maybe that's when La Liga uh, surges and overtakes the Premier League. But I don't think they're there yet. Yeah, the to, to me the gateway drug to soccer is the World Cup, usually or Euros, and any of those big. Oh con- yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And that, and that brings brings in a new listener or a new viewer uh, to soccer, and, and they get hooked. They're like, okay, this is incredible. Then the then the next step is the Premier League, and the Premier League is the most accessible. Uh, it is the most entertaining, but I think it's the most entertaining for, uh, precisely for the reasons you mentioned. There is some bad defending, a lot of the bad defending, but it makes games really exciting, fast paced. Uh, it's, and we'll see that over the Boxing Day, oh, the, the holiday break. We'll see lots of kind of hurly-burly, back-and-forth, entertaining end-to-end games, um, crazy games, really. And um, you don't see that as much in, in Spain. I think in Spain, it's especially La Liga, it's, it's a slower pace. It's a slower style of play. It is more, uh, there's more skill, technical skill. You're probably more likely to see some just some stunning skill that perhaps you wouldn't see in a lot of the Premier League matches, but it's a diff- different style. So not everyone's going to get into La Liga. So, but I think for the purist, I mean, the purists would probably look at uh, Premier League and, and see its benefits and flaws, and then maybe kind of gravitate to La Liga or gravitate to Serie A or, or, or Liga or Bundesliga. There's so many different options out there, Liga Max, and see and see kind of the, the beauty of, of those styles of play. Uh, personally, I, I like them all. I can like to mix it up and and. Depending on my mood of the day, I might watch La Liga in the morning, and then Premier League in the afternoon, and then, you mean Serie A late, later that evening, or you mean a US game, whatever it may be. But uh, it is it is interesting, and some of the points that um, the Graham mentions are uh, quite uh, thought provoking. So, so, so Kartik, let me let me just go on and just finish off uh, his his uh, his email he sent in. He says. Uh, the marketing implication in the U.S. seems to be that the Premier League is the most entertaining league to American viewers because it's fast, hyper-competitive, and theoretically doesn't require a lot of nuance uh, to enjoy it. But to what extent, to what extent does this sell American uh, viewers short and leave them missing out on an important soccer education? If you two were tasked with elevating La Liga's profile in the U.S. beyond Messi and uh, Ronaldo. What elements would you emphasize from a marketing standpoint? Um, yeah, I think it does. Um, I mean, I've complained about this all the time that too many Americans who crit- critique MLS and critique U.S. soccer, which I'm a critic of both, as, as I think listeners to this pod know, but they're always falling back on the English model and what goes on in England and how things were done in England. And, and the reality is things are not being done particularly well in England either. And uh, if, if, you're, if you're disgusted with Major League Soccer, you should talk to an average English 
football supporter in England that has been a supporter for a long time, not a millennial, that about the Premier League and the Premier League breakaway and foreign ownership and mm-hmm. all of that sort of stuff. And uh, really kind of the, um, the, the the emphasis of entertainment over quality and, and the high ticket prices, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, I think he's absolutely right on that. Uh, I think Spain to me is appealing because of the regional rivalries and the re- yep. look, I mean, I, fi- I find the, the, the I find Athletic Bilbao such a honest, um, honest, pure club at this point. In, in, in when you look at the world of football, which is full of mercenaries and full of player agents and full of all kinds of corruption, I, f- I find clubs like that appealing. Now, of course, um, there are the, the folks that would push back and say, well, it's a very tribal club. You shouldn't be embracing that kind of model. But I find that very appealing. I find so many of the the, the, the smaller clubs in Spain and their kind of political background and their socioeconomic background very interesting. I, here, here in the States, there's a lot of, uh, I shouldn't say a lot, but there are a fair number of liberals that I, I work with politically in my other life that, uh, that uh, there are two clubs they support uh, abroad. They support uh, FC San Pauli, which is a big thing among uh, kind of become a bigger thing among the American left if they're getting into soccer. And then Rio Vallecano in Madrid, mm-hmm. which has got that kind of St. Pauli vibe. So there are a lot of really good backstories to tell about Spanish football. Unfortunately, I think so many of the backstories about Spanish football involve politics. They involve Franco. They involve um, indigenous people and uh, Catalonia with Barcelona and autonomous regions, right, in the Basque country, so and Andalusia and all these places that I think that might be something that Americans are a little bit uh, – American marketing executives are a little hesitant about. However, I think the, the kind of public that embraces football would embrace that story. Uh, in England, I think uh, you've seen – this is interesting. I hate to go here, but I'm going to. I, I think part of the the – reason Liverpool and Everton have so much support in the United States is um, is political, is uh, the fallout from Hillsborough and the way the Thatcher government handled that, is um, a feeling that that is uh, a feeling that, that they've been the victims of history. And I think they have. I think clearly Scousers have been victims of, of Mark. I don't want to get too far into the politics, but sure. I think everybody knows how I feel about Hillsborough. But I, I think that's driven a lot of the fandom for Everton and Liverpool in this country. For both clubs. And I think that there's there's cheering among football fans in this club when they see an Everton fan go to Glasgow Airport and take a stack of Sun newspapers out of a newspaper bin and toss them in the trash. I think that that appeals to people. And Spain has as many of those really good stories as uh, any place in, in Western Europe. It's just how do they market that? How do they exploit it without offending Americans who are into this kind of franchise model where all people in the community support a club and it's not based on politics or ethnicity or or any of that. Um, That's not the European experience, by the way. And that's why, uh, um, again, the franchise model of Major League Soccer, I don't think appeals to a lot of soccer fans, a lot of mass soccer fans who are watching the game abroad because it's, it's very phony and contrived. I mean, Clubs have values attached with them in Europe and in Spain. Uh, and and uh, you have to tell those stories. And I think if the Spanish League, if La Liga told those stories a little better, a little more forcefully, they would gain uh, a, a larger footprint in this country. I, I don't believe in the, the victimization angle. I, I mean, to me, it's, it does add to the history of the club and to Liverpool and, and, and also Everton's connection with that, too, in terms of uh, you mean supporting the city and supporting the club and, and helping out. Um, 
adds yeah, to Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me just point out to people who don't realize this. Yes, uh, Hillsborough was a Liverpool football club tragedy. It was tragedy for everybody, for all football fans. But Everton, even though they're their biggest rival or their local rival, their, their supporters live in the same complexes or live next door to Liverpool fans whose families were impacted, who lost loved ones. So uh, it hits Everton fans about as hard as it hits Liverpool fans. They're very much in it together. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when I mention Hillsborough and the Sun and Everton, they, they view they view it, they may have a football rivalry with Liverpool, but they view Hillsborough the very same way Liverpool fans do. Everton fans are, this, are, are on the same page with Liverpool fans on that completely. Regarding uh, his question, Graham's question about La Liga and what can uh, La Liga do to basically kind of uh, improve itself from a marketing po- uh, standpoint, I, I think it's really kind of just focusing on in on the beautiful game. I mean, it is the beautiful game. Uh, I mean, not every match is entertaining, but it is a different style. It is very some of the, most of the best players from South America gravitate to uh, to La Liga, especially first, and, and later on they might go to England. But the majority of them decide to to stay there culture wise. If it's a better fit, but um, the other thing to me, and again from a marketing perspective, is that the league needs to do a much better job of. One, being more organized in terms of TV schedules. And so oftentimes, they're getting better, but oftentimes it's kind of maybe like a week or 10 days before they'll finalize the TV schedule or move, move a game. Uh, with the Premier League, you pretty much know like several weeks in advance um, when that game's going to be on, and except for some last-minute changes now and again. But for the most part, La Liga's just, uh, more disorganized from a TV perspective. But the big thing is, is just in terms of the TV production quality. So you, when you do watch La Liga, it is similar to Serie A sometimes where, again, camera angles, not as many cameras, the angles aren't as good, the picture quality isn't as good. Yes, if you're watching Real Madrid um, from Santiago, uh, Bernabeu, you're going to have a great uh, picture quality and camera angles, all that. But a lot of the other games, it's, again, you've got a track around the field. It's, it's not as um, inviting of a TV experience. And if they can improve the stadiums, which they are doing slowly but surely, and if they can pr- pr- improve the TV production. Uh, and they seem, La Liga seems to be more open to changing kickoff times to appeal to TV viewing audiences, while the Bundesliga is very, very kind of stuck in the system, and, and they really put their fans first. Well, that's the advantage that uh, Spain has over Germany. Is Germany is so locked into yep. this uh, this this uh, uh, community-owned, supporters-run model of football. I think the Bundesliga can't commercially become what the Premier League has become because of it. That having been said, if I were a football supporter, I'd much rather live in Germany than in England right. because of that. Right. But If you're a TV um, viewer. But if you're a TV viewer abroad, uh, England has the, the clear advantage. So Spain has the flexibility to do some of what England has done without uh, uprooting the, the, the fabric of the sport in the country. Now, England's uh, culture was very similar to Germany's before 1992. And uh, I don't necessarily agree with all the... The, the dronings on them, David Kahn and others that have, have lamented uh, the Premier League breakaway. But it is clear that the train has gone very uh, strongly in one direction, away from uh, fan engagement and community uh, orientation of, of football clubs. And Spain uh, has community-oriented football clubs, but they, they represent regions, they represent values, and I think they have an opportunity maybe to, to mimic a little bit of the Premier League experience. And La Liga, by uh, moving El Clasico to, I think it was 10.15 Eastern time kickoff, was a shot to the bow of the Premier League. Because basically they said, okay, we don't care about the Premier League. We're going to put it, you mean, kind of 10.15, 
uh, which is going to appeal to the uh, Asian audience for the TV viewers there. And we don't care that it's at the same time as Tottenham's playing. Uh, but we're so they are more open to changing things around uh, to the detriment of the fans, but to the, to the advantage of the TV viewing audience. Uh, and there they have possibly the most opportunity to really kind of push on and, and uh, improve the product. And it's not just Barcelona. It's not just Real Madrid. I mean, Atleti is currently sixth sixth in the table. You've got Sevilla in third. You've got Villarreal in fourth. It's doing really well. Uh, Real Sociedad's in fifth. So it is still open. Yeah, Barcelona and Real Madrid usually win the title. But it's not uh, a two-horse a, a two race. Uh, even it is competitive, um, definitely more so than than in the past. So, Kartik, let's move on into our last uh, segment, which is uh, our featured topic of the week. Um, and this one is a little bit different than usual. Instead of taking kind of a topic and taking maybe it's MLS TV ratings or it's the Bundesliga, we're looking at our top ten favorite commentators, co-commentators, and studio analysts. And uh, both Kartik, you and I kind of separately went ahead and put together our, our top 10 lists. And um, do you want to go first on the commentators from, from 10 to 1? And then uh, I'll chime in if I have any, any remar- remarks or if you have any additional input. Yeah, so uh, commentators, for me, this, this might reflect a, a great deal of American bias. But one is Derek Ray, because I've watched him from 1994 onward, the early days of Major League Soccer, all of the Champions Leagues until 2009, uh, then uh, uh, watched him uh, uh, for these summer tournaments uh, on ESPN World Cups. Uh, after that, Euros, Euro 2012, Euro 2016, and uh, now uh, getting a lot of Bundesliga action with Derek Ray. So I rank him number one. Uh, number two, I would say, is John Champion, uh, who uh, maybe it's just because it's overexposure to him. <laughs> um, doing he does uh, so many premier league games on the premier league feed for premier league productions he does championship games or football league games for uh, uh, for, uh that that you see on vn sports every now and then again he seems to come over to the united states during every international break and call games for espn whether it's european friendlies or european qualifiers or u.s men's national team games so maybe there's a lot of overexposure to john champion also i've interviewed him a couple times right uh right. for this for this podcast or the forerunner of this podcast so uh, i like him i get on with him quite well uh martin tyler who i've also interviewed um is uh is comes in number three tyler would have been number one a few years ago i, I think there's a little bit of slippage in this game uh number four i'm putting an american on the list you can send your hate mail now because this guy doesn't have a British accent or a European-sounding accent. Uh, John Strong, who I think has emerged as the leading play-by-play uh, or commentator voice in the United States. He is uh, really knowledgeable about football at all levels. Uh, unfortunately, you're getting strong only for uh, MLS and Bundesliga games. And I guess Europa League, right? Some Europa League games. Uh, he's, not, uh, uh, he, he's not calling Premier League. He's not calling... Uh, international tournament. Well, wait a second. He'll call the World Cup, right? Yep. He'll call Copa America. So, yep. uh, yeah, I guess his profile, he's tied to Fox now. Strong was this guy before he got tied to Fox that ESPN and NBC would call in on a pinch, in a pinch when they needed him. He ended up hosting NBC Studios for a while, right, when mm-hmm. Rebecca Lowe was at the uh, Olympics in the, the first uh, time she, she covered the Olympics. Right. So, so right, he, yeah, and it was it was seamless because he knew the Premier League. He knows He knows football. He's very bookish about the sport. I've got Phil Shane, uh, one of my all-time favorites, uh, fellow Broward County resident at number five, uh, called the first ever MLS match, a uh, guy that knows uh, 
about as much about American soccer and Latin American soccer as you'll find in the English language commentating community. I've got Steve Bauer at number six. Now, is Bauer a commentator? Is he a, uh, a, a studio uh, pundit? Is he a guy who narrates highlights on Match of the Day? Is he a guy who does interviews on Match of the Day? What is he? Well, he's a jack of all trades. I decided to put him on my commentator list, and I've got him at number uh, number six. Uh, I've got Ian Dark at number seven. Um, I go back and forth on Ian Dark. Ask me on another day. He might be number three. I've got uh, JP Della Camera at, at number eight, um, all-time favorite, uh, and a guy that uh, does so much uh, uh, soccer work uh, across the landscape, be it uh, international games, NASL, MLS, World Cups, Copa Americas. He's done it all. Indoor soccer back in the day. Uh, number yeah. nine, um, I, I, I have uh, basically co-number nines for three guys, Arlo White, uh, Andres Cantor, and Peter Drury. Um, they're all kind of – they're very different style commentators. I think Arlo White, uh, his, his voice, his, uh, his way of engagement is a little different because he comes from a radio background. Um, much like Gary Taphouse, who I don't have on my list, but I like a, a great deal also. Um, Peter Drury, I think, is just really good. Uh, maybe the, Jim Beglin, and we'll get to Jim Beglin later, brings out the best in him when they're paired together. And then Andres Contour is just a guy you have to have on your list if you're an American. And uh, he, uh, he now will get to call World Cups again now that Telemundo has gotten the World Cup rights for the next, uh, I want to say, two cycles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I should add, too, that, that these lists are put together based on experience and based on quality so it's not based on any kind of preference to a certain uh area of the world or country or language it's based on what what Kartik and i believe are are the best commentators um, at what they do and uh and it's it's a tough job it's not it's not easy by any means so so my top 10 Kartik, I'll, I'll go backwards so number 10 is uh dave farrar and Dave is one of those people that uh, once you hear his voice, you'll recognize him wherever he goes. But he has a very distinct English accent. Uh, it's very pleasing to the ear, but he's also a very good commentator. And, and uh, uh, once you've heard him once, and you probably heard him on um, uh, Football Mundial and some other shows, too, that come out of IMG, uh, he's a very distinctive uh, listener. And actually a very good commentator, and, and I, love, I love hearing him uh, commentate matches. Number nine, JP Della Camera. Um, I'm a big fan of JP. Yes, he has a very different style. Um, it is very more radio centric, where he kind of uh, uh, tells the story of what's happening, um, and it's sometimes a little bit repetitive for the TV viewer. Um, he's not adding much to it. It's just his style, and and I do like him, and I do respect him, and he has a great voice. And, and another person too that. Uh, when I hear JP, it's kind of a soothing, calming voice, um, and he is excellent at what he does. And as you saw in Copa America, um, A-plus uh, commentator. Number eight, Andres Cantor, the uh, Spanish-language uh, commentator. And uh, if you want to hear some great uh, Andres Cantor, just listen to the, the Carly Lloyd goal from um, the Women's World Cup, from uh, uh, this most recent one, from the final, from that, uh, that goal from halfway line. Uh, just an incredible call and uh, a very unique voice. Number seven for me is uh, Steve Bauer. Uh, very solid, dependable, uh, a great commentator, and also, like you said, Kartik, a great, uh, a great uh, presenter too. Number six is John Strong. Uh, John's come a long way and uh, is one of those people that uh, 
in the past with Fox, it was always a conversation point. There was always a discussion. There was always a debate. There was always, this game is great, but I hate the commentator. And, and Fox has found somebody who's confident, who knows the game, who commentates well, and uh, rarely makes a mistake, and is quality and someone dependable, which uh, Fox needed badly, and they got. And they got one of the best uh, commentators in the United States. Number five... And uh, I think Phil Shane is actually better than John Strong, slightly. But uh, Phil Shane's been around a lot longer. But uh, I do admire uh, Phil Shane's, um, not just his uh, commentating style, but also his knowledge of the game. And uh, not just of, of one league, but of many leagues. He's definitely a, a soccer aficionado and a fan of the world's game, but also a great commentator. And then uh, number four is Ian Dark. And uh, Ian, I like a lot, uh, not as much as some Americans do, I, uh, who have f fallen in love with him, uh, but I do think he's good, and uh, he offers uh, uh, some great anecdotes sometimes, and some good uh, insight in terms of uh, transfers or what's happening in, in the world of soccer. I, 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 have to, I have to jump in here, uh, sure. and I like Ian Dark, but uh, our former colleague Richard Farley said to me once, only in America would Ian Dark be more popular than Martin Tyler. I think that encapsulates it. Right, right. Well, as we saw in the World Cup, you uh, mean in terms of Ian Dark in the the top spot uh, in 2014 instead of uh, Martin Tyler, that was a, a huge coup for for Ian Dark. Uh, number three, Derek Ray. So Derek, to me, is one of the uh, probably the most underrated football commentator in the world. Somebody who's a scholar of the game, who uh, works incredibly hard, uh, covers leagues big and small and does a lot of research, and is definitely very, very uh, particular about uh, uh, player names, and oftentimes does his research, will meet with the players, get the pronunciation correctly, and uh, is a perfectionist, uh, and also has a great Scottish accent too. So uh, to me, Derek Ray is uh, top of the game. I'm surprised that Fox haven't tried to pick him up to try to bring him in, bring him in for World Cup coverage uh, in 2018, but to me, Derek Ray is... Uh, quintessential, one of the best uh, commentators and uh, severely uh, underrated, I believe. Uh, number two is John Champion. Uh, John, if, it, if anything, I think is almost bigger in the US than he is in the UK. Uh, he's uh, a great person. Again, someone with a distinct voice. Um, and I, I love listening to him. Very knowledgeable about the game and uh, chooses his moments uh, wisely. And is a great person to listen to in terms of uh, kind of just saying the, the perfect thing when the goal goes in or after the goal is scored. Uh, just, just just a pleasure to listen to. Number one for me is Martin Tyler. Uh, to me, Martin is a uh, poet laureate of, of soccer commentating. Uh, his cadence, uh, his voice, and uh, the, the way he's able to kind of put words together that just succinctly... Uh, sum up the the feeling and emotions of a goal, of a game, of a moment. Uh, to me, Martin, even though he's not doing as many matches as he's done in the past, uh, to me, he's the best of the best, and um, there's no one that comes close to him. Uh, but he, he has his own particular style. It does not everyone lo loves it. It is very kind of dry. It is kind of quiet at times. But to me, that kind of sometimes he he rises to the emotions in the games, and sometimes kind of uh, decreases that. Uh, based on the tempo of the game too. So it is very kind of a realistic style rather than over-the-top uh, football commentating. So, Kartik, let's go through the uh, co-commentators. Um, your top ten, uh, please. 
Yeah, this was a much more difficult list to compile. They were all difficult lists, but this was more difficult on the commentators. I, I, I'm still not quite sure um, the order, but I, I put them in an order. I'm not really married to the order. I got it uh, at number 10, uh, Thomas Rongen, who's been begun doing a lot of games uh, uh, for BN, who is, I think, very good, very analytical, very uh, tactical in how he describes the game. And he's uh, all another uh, local for, for me, Broward County resident, the guy I've worked with. So I enjoy his commentary. I've got Landon Donovan as a bit of a surprise at number nine. He only did a couple games in the Copa America. I know uh, this will be controversial to people, but he was he was good right out of the shoots. And he was yeah. probably better. He was probably better right out of the shoots than Taylor Twelman was. And Taylor Twelman mm-hmm. is the top American uh, co-commentator in, in my mind. So uh, that's, uh, that's uh, um, kind of... Uh, you know, he has a great deal of potential in this business, and I hope he uh, he takes advantage of this and continues to grow. Uh, I've got Matteo Benetti as my eighth guy. He he uh, does a lot of Serie A games. May not be as well known mm-hmm. Serie A games on uh, BN Sport, but he describes them perfectly for me. The tactical battle and psychological battle of Serie A. Maybe it's because I watch more Serie A than most folks do. That that uh, he's on my list. I've got Danny Higginbotham, who I think is really good, mm-hmm. at number seven. I thought about putting him higher. And he does, obviously, a lot of Premier League games and got uh, a couple caps for Gibraltar's national team once they were, um, they were recognized by FIFA and UEFA. I've got Phil Neville at number six. He's not doing as many games now. Uh, he's cycling through. Uh, but he's doing um, – when, when he does a game, he has a distinct voice, a distinct way of pairing with whoever he does games with. And I think he does quite a good job. Uh, Jim Beglin at number five. Jim Beglin could have been number one on my list. He's he's really good. I think he, he elevates the person he works with. Uh, Peter Drury, we mentioned, uh, he's worked with John Champion a lot, elevates uh, John Champion. And um, I should point out our lists uh, for this are a little bit different. We had the same top three, albeit in a different order for, for commentators, but I think our lists are a little different on this uh, one. Yep. Number four, I've got Taylor Twellman. Uh, who I think is on pace to be number one pretty soon. He's uh, He really understands the game. He really explains the game. And if people who are biased could get past his accent, they would realize he's pretty darn good at what he does and how he describes it and puts in the prep work. Uh, number three, I've got Lee Dixon. I've just gotten used to him through the years between his work at Satanta and ESPN UK, uh, the ITV work, and uh, now uh, obviously for, with NBC. He's... Um, the thing about Dixon is that I guess the, the, the sense might be from some fans that he's overly critical, right? And maybe I gravitate towards overly critical uh, uh, commentators, co-commentators, and studio analysts. And, and perhaps that's a, that's a theme of my list. Twelman, too. Twelman is far more critical than any other American uh, co-commentator. And he he's the top American co-commentator on my list. So maybe I have an affection for that. Speaking of critical, I've got Stuart Robson at number two. <laughs> Um, and I, I, I just think Stuart Robson's fantastic. I, I enjoy when he's in the studio with ESPN uh, on ESPN FC. I chose to put him on the co-commentator list. I couldn't put him on the studio list. Uh, I, I enjoy when I get any kind of uh, game with him doing it, whether it's a Premier League game or a Bundesliga game or an MLS game. I mean, and, and he knows every league. He understands every league, and he, he's incredibly well prepared. Uh, sorry, Wenger fans. Uh, Robson, I, I rate Robson higher than I rate Wenger. Robson is 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 uh, higher on my uh, announcers list now than uh, 
<laughs> Vancouver is on my manager's list. Number one, I've got Owen Hargreaves, a bit of a surprise, maybe a little bit of North American bias. Uh, but I, I really like the way, and might be because he works with Derek Ray so much. I like the way Owen Hargreaves has blended his knowledge of German football into his um, understanding of the English thought process and with some North American sensibilities because he grew up in Canada. And, and, and all of that's reflected in the way he, he analyzes the game. And for me, that's, uh, that's, the whole, that's the complete package. So he's number one on my list. Very good, very good. So, so my top 10 uh, in reverse order, number 10 is Maka. Steve McManaman, and uh, with a caveat, and the caveat is, is that uh, as long as that doesn't include England games, just because I think when uh, Ian Dark and Macca especially uh, do commentate England games, they get sucked up into kind of the uh, the patriotism, and, it, and it's hard for Macca to be objective, and you can you can hear the the the, the emotion and kind of pain and just frustration um, in those types of commentaries, and it kind of to me at least. Um, Kind of it reduces the quality of Maka just because he, he gets caught up in that, and so so Maka would be number ten for uh, partnered with Ian Dark, of course. But Maka would be number ten for games that don't involve England because he can be very entertaining and enlightening um, and a pleasure to listen to. Number nine, Taylor Swellerman. So Taylor, I well, we'll we'll get into this a little bit later as far as the uh, studio analysts, but I definitely rate uh, Taylor Swellerman much higher as a studio analyst than as a commentator, a co-commentator. Um, and actually, Twelman does very, very well, uh, oftentimes in reading the game as a co-commentator and kind of predicting what's going to happen. He looks at a free kick and says, okay, well, you mean this goalkeeper needs to watch that left left post because this, this striker is, is uh, in the last three out of four times, he's hit his uh, free kicks right at that, 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 post, that post area. Um, th- those types of things. I mean, he can definitely add a lot, lot to it. But for me, he's a little bit too talkative and too conversational sometimes during games. And again, that's more style. But I much prefer him as a uh, an analyst who can dig deep and, and really kind of take a deep dive on why a team is you mean, having a, t- a difficult time or doing really, really well. Uh, number, let me see, number eight on my list is Landon Donovan. Uh, I think he did a great job at Copa America, especially uh, alongside JP, and was very honest and was kind of uh, adding and shining a lot of insight that you don't usually get from uh, co-commentators for U.S. soccer games. Uh, He wasn't afraid to be critical uh, when he needed to be. Number seven is uh, Jim Beglin, uh, pretty consistent and and, uh, on the rise. We've been hearing more and more of him lately, usually about two games a weekend from him um, in the Premier League, co-commentating. Number six, I have Owen Hargreaves. Uh, I think Owen's um, a little bit dry, but but he definitely, if you listen to him, he, he offers some great insights into matches, uh, how teams are setting up, and, and very observant. Number five, this one um, is not my favorite person, but he is definitely a great commentator, and that is uh, Andy Gray. And I think Andy Gray is a co-commentator, uh, is great to listen to, but also uh, kind of uh, is uh, uh, eye-opening at times in terms of some of the things he sees or some of the things he drills home. Uh, we don't get to, to uh, watch or listen to him much anymore, but um, from time to time he is, I think even the Premier League has had him on a few times in the past couple of years. Uh, but uh, as a person, I don't like him. As a commentator, uh, I think he does a good job. Number four, Stuart Robson. 
And I think Stuart is a uh, scholar of the game. I think we talked about last week, but somebody that really knows the game inside and out and is able to, from a tactical perspective, uh, add context or add information to a, a, a match that you usually don't get with a, an average co-commentator. Uh, number three, this is uh, kind of a, a personal favorite of mine, and that's uh, Ray Hudson. And I realize that a lot of people either love Ray or they hate Ray. And when I run into soccer fans, even last week, I was running into some soccer fans, and this one guy was telling me on and on and on how he hated Ray Hudson, how Ray was kind of very uh, distracting and took him away from the games, and he hated listening to Ray. And I was like, well, you have to know Ray and, and as a player, as a manager, as a coach, and as a pundit. He's a breath of fresh air and is, is a poet in different ways, but is always entertaining. And uh, it's, always, it's always an entertaining game when, uh, when Ray's uh, commentating or co-commentating that. Number two, Danny Higginbotham. Higginbotham uh, great uh, analyst and definitely uh, a breath of fresh air. And then number one for me is Lee Dixon. So Lee is able to kind of combine a little bit of the a little bit humor, a little bit dark humor at times, um, and but also with some good analysis. And I think he does a good job um, with Arlo. But I think Lee Dixon definitely, to me at least, is uh, at maybe a year ago or maybe a year and a half ago, I would have said he's kind of neck and neck with uh, Graham Lasso. But to me, in the past year or so. Uh, Lee Dixon has gone way ahead um, in my estimation and, and uh, always enjoy listening to him as a co-commentator. So Karthik, last but not least, the studio, studio analysts. So this would be folks that we would see either half-time or post-match or, or pre-game or maybe um, on some of the, the other shows uh, around games, uh, providing their analysis and uh, what do you think? What's your, what's your top 10 for uh, studio analysts? My top 10 for studio analysts, uh, I've got Brian McBride at number 10. I know a lot of people might find this controversial uh, that uh, because they saw him at Fox. They didn't particularly care for him uh, at Fox. Uh, he wasn't uh, on my list at the time, but he's really reemerged at ESPN FC as a, uh, as a top studio analyst. Uh, to me, so he, he, he's emerging and he's rising. I've got him at number ten. That's Shaka Hislop at number nine. I think Hislop uh, is always kind of spot on. He's on the money about uh, so much that he, he discusses. I've got Jamie Carragher at number eight. Carragher, uh, uh, he grates on people, but I think he makes a lot of a um, lot of good points and his entertainment and isn't uh, entertaining and is not afraid to mix it up a bit. Uh, Julie Foudy. Uh, who does uh, women's uh, football, has done a lot of men's uh, soccer also through the years. Uh, I've got it number seven. I think she's really, really good. She un she gets the game from both a tactical and a, and a technical standpoint. Uh, she understands the backstories around the sport. And uh, it, it's been kind of a loss for uh, Fox that they had the Women's World Cup rights and didn't find a way to bring her over. Mm -hmm. It was good to see her back. Uh, doing things on the Euros this summer with uh, ESPN. Uh, Gary Neville, I've got at number six. Uh, I, I'm using Neville as a studio guy, uh, not not a co-commentator here. Uh, he's been doing more of that. Um, I ironically have him in the same spot I have his brother as a co-commentator. I've got Eric Winalda at number five. I know uh, a lot of folks aren't going to be thrilled with that, but I, I really think Winalda is outstanding, but is surrounded by less... Um, less interesting uh, people, or maybe not less interesting people, but less uh, polished 
analytical uh, people on Fox. Mm -hmm. And so the best in him doesn't necessarily come out, but uh, he has his moments, and I I put him at at the bottom of my top five. Uh, I've got Taylor Twelman, number four. Uh, Twelman, I I concur with a lot of what you said uh, in in why you had him so low among co-commentators. I've got him uh, in in the same position as analysts or as co-commentators. I see some of the same virtues, uh, but he's very good in studio. Got Stuart Robson at number three. We've talked about Robson already, uh, but I enjoy any time he's in the studio. Uh, Got Kyle Martino at number two. I know people are going to hate this. A lot of people, again, wrong accent. Martino says something that's really useful and really analytical and generally spot on every single time he's on NBC analyzing the Premier League game. I don't know if it's the intense preparation. I don't know if it's the um, the way he watches games, which is different than other studio analysts. But he, he, he's just spot on, and he's on the money. And there's very few times that I disagree with what he says. There's a lot of times where I say, oh, wow, I didn't think of that. But he's right. So I've got Martino at number two. I've got Craig Burley at number one. Uh, he's my favorite guy. This entire list, everything, he's my favorite guy. He doesn't pull any punches. He isn't scared. There are no sacred cows with him. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he And he is always well-prepared. He's well-researched. And um, he's right 95% of the time, in my opinion. So I've got him number one on my list. I know uh, he is a guy that really grates on people. And there are people who probably have worse commentators or worse studio analysts and have him number one. Well, I've got a list of the best. I've been asked to do this by you, Chris. And I've got him number one as the best one on my list. Out of your top 10, it's interesting because uh, eight of those uh, have either worked at ESPN or uh, previously worked at ESPN. And my list, I think, reflects the same too. I think it might even be the same number. And this is purely by coincidence. Like you did your list separately. I did my list separately. But that's one of the things that ESPN, that, that's from a soccer perspective, does the best. They have the best analysts. They allow, they allow them to talk, but allow them to talk uh, intelligently and have some great discussion and debates and we've seen that during the Euros. We've seen that during the World Cups. And I think that's a reflection, too. I think on your list, I don't think you have any Fox. Well, actually, Winalda. So you've got one person from Fox on there. I think I, I think I might have one on there, too, also from Fox. But most of them are ESPN people, just because that's kind of their... That's kind of seems to be the work ethic. They're, they're allowed to be open and be honest and have a conversation, and rather than to be reading scripts and be very uh, stiff and have sound bites and um i guess from your perspective my perspective that espn style is much more um watchable and that's something that i will go out of my way to watch espn cover a game because i know that you're going to learn something or there's going to be something that's going to add to your knowledge or give you an interesting take on something so so Kartik, my top 10 in reverse order for the uh, soccer studio analysts number 10 julie Foudy. Number nine is uh, Robbie Musto. Uh, number eight, Robbie Earl. And uh, number seven, Ronaldo. Ronaldo, I think, in many ways, uh, if you listen to him on WTF, on his show on Sirius Satellite, you get a much better appreciation for the knowledge that he has um, and some interesting uh, takes on things and some fresh, again, breath of fresh air um, ideas. And as a coach, you can really kind of see the benefit and, and understand how much he knows the game. 
Unfortunately, with a Fox system, he, he gets sound bites. He gets a couple of minutes, if that, 30 seconds, and you don't get the best out of him. But uh, So Bernalda is number seven on my list. Uh, number six is somebody we don't get to see that much, that often, but when we do, I, I do enjoy uh, listening to him, and that's uh, Michael Ballack, uh, who's kind of famous in the U.S. for uh, his Euro coverage in the Euros, his analysis. Uh, number five is Craig Burley. I love Craig, I think, uh, for all the reasons you mentioned, Kartik. Uh, number four is Kyle Martino. I think uh, Kyle, out of the, the two Robbies and the Kyle, Kyle is the, the strongest of the three, and uh, like you said, does his homework, uh, as do the Robbies too, but usually has a, a very... There's always something I'm, I'm hearing from him. I'm like, wow, okay, yeah, he's right. That, that's, that's, yeah, he's got, got a great uh, angle on that, and that's something that um, sometimes I don't hear so much from, from the Robbies. Number three is Taylor Twelman, and Taylor, as a, an analyst, studio analyst, is uh, the best in the United States, and uh, top level, and uh, as we saw in the Euros too, he's able to debate with uh, Vincent Company or Roberto Martinez or uh, Frank LeBeuf, others, some people that have been around the game probably a lot longer, they have a lot more uh, worldly experience, but Taylor's able to sit into, into that studio set and drive the conversation in ways that um, the others are, uh, others are unable to. And I think he adds so much from a, um, a tactical, not, not, not just tactical, but from a soccer perspective, he is uh, top of the game in the U.S. And uh, number two, Stuart Robson, um, for many of the reasons, too, as far as kind of being a scholar of the game. I have him, actually, as a co-commentator and as an analyst, uh, but as an analyst, uh, he's great, too. And then number one for me is Gary Neville. And uh, this is probably pre-Valencia Gary Neville rather than post-Valencia just because post Valencia, I haven't had a chance to watch him as much. Uh, but when I have done bits and pieces here and there, uh, he just definitely uh, brings, again, a different perspective to the game. And, and again, it takes it to a different level as far as the things that you learn or the things he points out. Uh, and also using his experience as a, a former professional player and using that to give you a context in terms of how teams are setting up or the relationships with managers. Uh, something that, say, Warren Barton, uh, another f uh, former professional footballer, isn't able to do. Uh, Gary is a great uh, communicator and really gets his points uh, well across. So, Kartik, uh, there's our list. We'll go ahead and publish those on uh, willsoccertalk.com so that uh, the readers and listeners can uh, debate and, and share that their, uh, their opinions and, and, yeah. and their top ten lists. Yeah, it was so difficult to compile. I mean, there were guys like Brian Dunseth and... Uh, uh, Ravi Musto, who I, Ravi Earl, that I really liked that I left off my list and just didn't realize how difficult it is to kind of finalize the top 10. Uh, and other guys, not just those three, but those three are the ones that spring to mind right away that I was trying to find a way to get Dunny on the top 10 and just couldn't. He, he would be 11th. Yeah. Trying to find a way to get Musto on the list and he'd be 11th. So uh, it was, it was, it's not as easy to do as you might think uh, for those of you out there who say, oh yeah, I have a clear top 10 of uh, commentators and co commentators I like. Yeah, the, the the interesting the the interesting one for me is the Arlo White one, which I think Arlo does a great job. It's just he's not my style, and he is very conversational. Usually, the first two or three minutes of a game, he's just talking on and on and on before the co-commentator even gets a chance to say hello. And sometimes during matches, we've seen that in the Premier League, the first couple of minutes of the game, things happen, goals are scored. I mean, so 
just his style format is is uh, very American. It's it's very odd actually because he you point this out and that that's right. He he will not actually introduce his commentator Lasso or uh, Lasso is another guy I wanted to try and fit into yeah. my list and, and couldn't. He he. Uh, he doesn't introduce Lasso or Dixon until two or three minutes into the match sometimes. It's yeah. Just, yeah. He gives a, gives a backstory. Um, you mean in terms of, okay, this is the two teams and this is what position they're in. It, it is kind of like a, a quick wrap up for, I guess, listeners but coming in. I have to say for the American audience, that's probably, they, they, they probably prefer that to a Martin Tyler or Derek Ray yeah. type style. Yeah. Yeah, for, well, definitely to a Martin Tyler style. I mean, they, they would prefer it on all whites. But to me, that the Premier League does such, I mean, NBC does such a great job of pre-match uh, analysis and coverage and, and setting you up for the game that oftentimes I find the first two or three minutes of Arlo's commentary repetitive because it's like, I think for the most part, people are more likely to be listening or, or watching the, the pre-match on, on, on NBC uh, than they would be for a Fox game, um, even where people might just tune in for the match itself. So to me, it's a little bit repetitive and I, I, it's annoying. I think it might be a BBC radio thing because yeah, yeah. Uh, Gary Taphouse is very similar. And I like Taphouse also, but he, yeah. he, he kind of leads in the same way. He sets the scene, uh, sets the table for you about a match before really engaging his co-commentator. Uh, and that's... Uh, that's a style, I think, again, that works probably better for an American audience than for a British audience, or a British uh, television audience, maybe a British radio audience where the two of them have been trained. It, it, it works the best. Another interesting thing, too, is that uh, so every week on the worldsoccertalk.com website, we publish the, the listings of the commentators, who's going to be commentating the games of the weekend. And it's usually the day before we'll find out. And I think we're I think we're the only ones, or one of the few that that post those. But there's so much, this has been going on for months. But there's so much debate about two people in particular that um, people post on there every week, saying like, "Oh gosh, like Ola White's going to be commentating that game. I'm going to have it on mute." Uh, and then you have some people who say, "Hey, I love Ola White. I mean, I, what what are, you, what are you criticizing him for?" But the other person is Peter Drury, and for whatever reason, there's a lot of people that do not like Peter Drury. And we'll tune out or mute those games. I, I don't get it. I, I, Peter, Peter Drury to me is good, but there's probably something that that person's that Peter Drury's saying that just gets on their nerves. I, I thought I thought you were going to tell say Stuart Robson because that <laughs> sets off Arsenal fans off. Right? No, no, the Arsenal fans are pretty quiet. At least I, I think they've given up by this by this point. But uh, it's, it's just interesting. All the White and Peter Drury, the, the two that every week there's people talking about them. Uh, whenever we post a schedule. And, and actually, for some people, I know that, that whether they do this or not, but they post this, they say that they will purposely stay, avoid those games because of certain commentators or will listen to a different uh, broadcast feed just so they don't have to listen to those announcers. Uh, I, I, I don't go that far, but, uh, but I have my favorites, and as, as you do too, Kartik. So, uh, listeners, definitely give us your feedback. Let us know uh, who your favorites are. Let us know what questions you have, whether it's about TV or streaming soccer uh, or anything that we've said today. If you agree or disagree with us, be sure to give us the feedback. We'd love to read your questions and comments on air and answer those uh, for you. Um, You can contact us three different ways. The first is through email, which is at web at worldsoccertalk.com. The second way is through Twitter, which is through our Twitter account, WSoccerTalk. And then third, last but not least, is through Facebook, and that's facebook.com slash worldsoccertalk. 
So on behalf of Kartik and I and uh, the World Soccer Talk podcast, we'd like to, again, wish you a very Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays. And thank you for listening. We hope you're enjoying this new format. And Kartik, I'll let you uh, leave us off. This holiday season, enjoy your football. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusion Supply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.